Well, babe, we did it. We wrote a book. Yeah, man, it's it's actually surreal to even think about uh, that we wrote a book, had a baby, got married, not necessarily in that order. <laughs> <laughs> but the book is now available yeah. for pre-order, and we're so excited to share it with you. Oh, so looking forward to getting this book into your hands, to be in dialogue and conversation with all of you as we continue to liberate love from old imprints and codependent dynamics that keep us small, stuck, and stagnant. Yeah, you know, no matter your relationship status, this book walks you through what shaped you, why do you do what you do in relationship. It dives deep into your relationship blueprint, attachment styles, and most importantly, which is different than every other book that's ever covered codependency in the past, we explore the role of the nervous system in that. And the book is called Liberated Love. Yeah. Release your codependent patterns and create the love you desire. Go to createthelove.com slash liberated love to order your copy now. That's createthelove.com slash liberated love and get that pre-order in and you'll be able to get a free download of a meditation we created and a workbook that goes along with it. Much love and appreciation for your support. Much love. Thank you. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Mark Rose Podcast. This week, I have Laura McCown on the podcast. Laura is an author. She is incredible. She's the type of person that when you read her words and hear them, they resonate in a part of your body that must rep- it might just recognize truth. It's like a tuning fork. I just love her and her heart and her soul so much and enjoyed the first episode so much because we talked about addiction and how does that show up in our lives and how do we transform and you know, on her website, she has a quote that says, fall in love with the mystery of life again. It's all right here waiting for you to say yes. Isn't that so true, right? Like, it's just waiting for us to say yes, the mystery, right? That the mystery is actually a beautiful thing, even though it's certainly a large source of our anxieties. And she's the author of a book called We Are the Luckiest, The Surprising Magic of a Sober Life. So I'm really excited to have had another really beautiful, deep, fun, we had a lot of laughs, and I'm sure you will too, conversation with Laura McCown. And before we get into today's episode, please, wherever you listen to the podcast, one way that you could support it is by leaving a five-star review and a written review. That's so helpful. And make sure you subscribe to it so you don't miss any episodes. Without further ado, here's Laura McCown. I feel very lucky to have you back on the podcast. Well done. Chatting, right? That was good. Um, that was good. Laura McCown, back on the podcast. Mm-hmm. And I do have to, for everyone listening, the reason I said luckiest is because she is the author of a book called We Are the Luckiest, The Surprising Magic of a Sober Life. And I mean, I just want to give a standing ovation to that because I didn't realize how magical my life could be. And I thought alcohol added value to my life in some ways. And then when I removed it, I realized I was sitting on so much unrealized uh, value, presence, uh, a lot of things, better decisions. You know what? We're probably coming up celebrating here my third year. Wow. Yeah. How long has it been for you? It'll be eight years this year. Eight years. And you know, like, I think if you're sober or got sober in the last two years of psychological mindfuckery, 
Mm-hmm. You're killing it. Like I was thinking that. Oh, the, if people have. Yeah. Like if 100%. you've gotten sober and stayed sober, like Absolutely. I could tell you, I wanted to bathe in what would have been my Aperol spritz would have been my sort of, you know. <laughs> oh God, you're so bougie. If, if I was brunching. Uh, <laughs> no, I, yeah. You know what? If I'm going to drink, my friends used to make fun of me when I got a Sauvignon Blanc, but you know, I might as I'm well enjoy learning it. a lot. Yeah. 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 Okay. And I, I know why I'm that. in touch with my emotions. You are very in touch. Yeah. I would have, it would have just been a giant vat, a cellar full of red wine. Oh, red wine. I mean, if there's a gateway drug, I think red wine is, is, it and it's so feel, Yeah. It makes you feel romantic and like That's you're true. sophisticated. And what song would you be playing? It's got undertones of like sexual energy and. <laughs> Yeah, that red wine really gets my uh, motor running. Gets your motor running, yeah. Uh, what what song? Oh my god, something moody like yeah, I envision brothers like, and. I was gonna say I envision like uh, maybe a little um, Frank Sinatra. Oh sure, you know, right? always always right. on tap. Yeah, so I mean, I think it's been for anyone. It seems like. Uh, we've tapped into the old alcohol or numbing devices in the last while. Um, you know, I want to say for good reason, you know, like, and yeah. I don't mean good reason, like, Hey, go get hammered just to, to it's understandable. Yeah, it really is. What have um, you found yourself turning to that? Maybe you don't love that you uh, turn to. Yeah. Dry mango. That's my, <laughs> my, um, and also social it's media. It's really good, isn't it? It's so like, good. I'm not eating sugar. <laughs> yeah. It's fine. You know, it's I'm like basically snorting sugar. Uh, that and social media, you know, just being addicted to the constant dysregulation that news and fear and, mm-hmm. and all that. Um, I really found myself anxious more than I'd ever been. Uh, yeah. I never would have identified as an anxious person. Oh, um, really? No, definitely That's, not. Yeah. But I, I met the edges of it for sure. I thought I was going to have, a, I Googled, is this a psychological break or a nervous breakdown? So that tells you wow. uh, where What did that feel like? Because I, I know I, I am a very familiar with anxiety. It's been a part of my deal forever. When I was drinking, it was, that was the thing that I, mm had to, that I said, I, I can never feel this way again. Cause you feel like you're going to die. I was, I had my head in my hands and I was with my, my work team. And I remember thinking like, I'm, I was terrified of what was beyond the capacity I'd hit. Like I was terrified mm. that my, like, what would I be like if my mind broke? Oh, that's, that's terrifying. That's where I was. And and the irony is that I might not, have, you know, like when I drank or smoked weed, I might not have ever felt all of that, you know, like on some level, like the, yeah. the, the alarms, uh, yeah. maybe it been keeps, delayed. it keeps us from, it, it, it has a purpose for a long time for a lot of people. Yeah. Now, like I find if I was to touch marijuana, it makes me more anxious. So oh, it's don't not even get me started. <laughs> right. And uh, I just realized how much I'd sort of normalized um, being split, feeling like I couldn't express myself, uh, 
that that I was tolerating a world that was being saturated in fear and psychological um, manipulation. Uh, and obviously, there's some benefit to the news to get information, but you know, I just felt like the pandemic had been weaponized in a lot of ways. Uh, certainly, not denying that there is one, and I'm not anti-vax. Uh, like I know those are usually where we go. Um, I'm curious, what about for you? All those things, and I, I, it's only in the past maybe a couple of months, really, that I have been able to see how bad I felt and how bad I was, and what bad of a state I I was mentally. Mm-hmm. Um, because I'm maybe I've got some remove from it. Like I I quit social media for really all of last year. I I tapped out around April and then had a brief re-entry. And then I was like, I, I, I'm actually out. I can't do this anymore. And I wrote this piece for the New York times quitting Instagram. I actually deleted everything from my account, all of that and, and stepped away for, for a while. Um, what was that like? Yeah. It was really, it was necessary in a lot of ways. I, was at that place also, like you said, I was in constant fear, hypervigilant, feeling choked, like overthinking everything I might say, being very obsessed. Like I felt like someone was coming to get me. Mm. Isn't that all interesting? The, all the time. I mean, social media is certainly for a while there, especially I, I think cancel culture has been canceled or attempting to be canceled. It's certainly I see in the comments and the volume in- has come down. Yeah. Like I see, you know, your classic inbox message or, or comment that's trying to, so what you're saying is, or like people trying to put you in a box or, or cancel you because they're offended by something. Um, it, it's, I don't think it's ever been more terrifying to be self-expressed and not agree with everything that's going on. Like, which was impossible, by the way, you couldn't agree with everything. I don't, you couldn't agree with, you couldn't agree. If you agreed with everything, you know, I mean, you couldn't, there was, there were too many different opinions and I've, I learned, like, I know enough about psychology to even know what was happening. Like, I know that we psychologically split when things get too chaotic. Yeah. I know that we were in this trauma state and, you know, we were projecting. I know that people were horrifically afraid. I know that we were all locked down. I knew all these things. And yet I still didn't, I still really didn't realize the depth to how I was responding in such a like trauma response. I just, I couldn't stay away. Right. Every time I went in, I felt like my whole body would just let like, you know, squeeze around my throat felt like entering a snake pit. It made me really, really sick. Hmm. And, um, I'm sure I'll continue to learn about it, but yeah, very much the same as you. I, I, I had, a few panic attacks. I had a few feelings where a few moments where I thought this might kill me. Like if I continue to try to do this, I'll, I'm not going to, my, I won't survive. Like my mind will leave eventually. I, 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 I won't. So this isn't worth it. Yeah, it isn't. And you know, it's since the beginning, I have spoken out against lockdowns, like 
there hadn't been any science. They were not part of pandemic plans before the pandemic. I recognized and felt that the psychological impacts would be far greater based on what I saw at the time the data showed was the perceived threat. You know, and you're constantly negotiating all these numbers. And of course, like when they first started, I was like, oh, well, this might work, you know, who knows? And then it'll at be least for a little in, while. Right. And then at least in Canada, I've continued to see this attempt, depending on what part of Canada you're in and other parts of the world where they just keep trying this when the data is not like there's not a clear delineation between nope. a place that does or a place that doesn't. And the onus is actually on the people putting in the lockdowns that they have clear data that shows they work. But what I found from a psychological perspective, so fascinating is the attack I would get when I would say something about it or oh. the, um, the barrage, because I get it, you know, like I've been afraid the last couple of years, um, my fear, and I'm not diminishing COVID, um, my fear has not been of COVID. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's been like, well, I don't want to get sick and I don't, but I've taken good care of my health. Yeah. My you're life, at you a, know? you're at a good age. Right. You're not, you're not the risk profile, the high risk profile. But even that it's like, here's this one solution that everybody has to do. And if you don't do that, you're not, a, you're against the community and it the means collective. a lot of things, right? Right. So exile, it means belonging. And so I observed my own experience of, of the attempts to exile and, and the fear of mine of not belonging, because I was like, no, there's something in my body that just says, I can't do this. And I can't put something in my body that <laughs> isn't consensual. Yeah. And then I was like, wait, there's people who actually think we should make people get this even. And so I just started to see how much fear had made it. So we couldn't even take in data that was contradictory to these things. And, and that's what started to scare me, but I understood that for anyone who was embedded in that or engaged in that, the intention was to get out of this. The intention right. is, is love. I get it. Everybody wanted to feel well and to feel I don't even know if it, I mean, love, I think, sure. But I don't think, I think it's just, I, people want control. They want to feel like there's some, that the world yeah. can be controlled. I was thinking recently how I, this might throw us in a direction, <laughs> but whatever. <laughs> uh, I was thinking about how in, when I was in my sophomore year of high school, so I, I must've been 15, 14 or 15 uh, in my AP English class, I wrote, we were, it was like our big assignment for the semester to write a big research paper and, you know, take a stance and defend mm -hmm. that. And so I picked abortion because who wouldn't no yeah, way to, you know, way to go for it. That's a, yeah, I, I was, you know, 14 or 15 years old in this raised in this small town. I'd never had sex before. I had literally no life experience. I don't know why I picked that. I really don't. Well, I, I do actually, that's the point. I didn't know at the time, but I argued very pro life, like quoting Rush Limbaugh, quoting, you know, these very extreme characters. And I felt very justified and very right. Mm -hmm. uh, if you don't want to have a baby, you don't want to get pregnant. 
don't have sex. What's wrong with you? Are you just weak? And I felt so self-righteous in my body. And some of that is just the naivety of being young. You know, we've all had those, had those views, but this one stood out to me. I was actually, I was replying to a question from someone um, that came in and like dissecting because what we know is life is always more complicated once we get into an experience ourselves. And I did in my last, my senior year in college, I was the first man I had sex with. It was the first time I had sex. It was the first, uh, I alcohol was involved and I got pregnant, you know, with him eventually he wanted nothing to do, do with me. It was, there was at that time, there was literally no question in my mind that I might be a mother. I might have a baby. It was just like, I'm going to college. This person is terrible. My life will, it seemed like be over. So in a matter of years, all of a sudden, because I was in something, yeah, I had a completely different viewpoint mm-hmm. and that's how it, it always goes, right? We, we only know what we experience and we all filter things <laughs> totally through our own lens, but we pretend to know what other people should do. And that just like amplify I the why I started this was when I think about the girl who wrote the the paper I was in a really like hard emotional time in my life I, I had lots of divorces going on in my family my parents had been long divorced but there were a couple more that happened in my mom's relationships and my dad and I was very afraid of sex I was very conf- I felt not like is secure. My friends were all very like sexually active and I sort of was a late bloomer and I just had a lot of insecurity around it. And, um, I didn't feel like I knew what to do with any of that. And I wanted control. I wanted things to be in like yeah, nice boxes, good and bad. Yes. And no. And I wanted everyone to apply by the same rules. And I wanted to be able to say if someone went against the rules of what I thought that they were bad and they were wrong so that I could feel safer. Yeah. And there's no difference between that 14 year old and what we act out and you know what they, it's like the, the entire world in some sense, but certainly Canada and you know, where you are in the U S like that multiplied by a million because we were led by people doing the same thing. Look, I like to get my greens on the go. I don't want to compromise on quality. I want to get organic. I want non-GMO. I want all the things. And my favorite product from Organifi will never cease to be the green juice. And now they have a green apple flavor, which kicks ass. I think I can say that. But it kicks ass. It's so good. And it's so easy. You just take a glass of water, take a scoop of green juice, or you take the travel packs. They're great to travel with. You open it up, you put it in the water, you mix it, and then bam, you've got a green juice without the mess, without all that stuff. And you're getting all the nutrients that all these superfoods that are in the green juice provide. So go check it out. Go to Organifi.com slash create the love and you save 20% at checkout. So that's O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com slash create the love. And they have tons of amazing products. So go check it out and go save 20%. Yeah, that's such a good point. You know, and I've heard the language, I'll I'll speak more specifically to the Canadian leader saying that, um, do the right thing. You did the right thing. Mm. And so the people who did the right thing will be rewarded. And the ones who didn't will 
experienced passports and they won't be able to fly in Canada and they any call like them scary religious cult stuff. If you just hear the words, right? And 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 a lot of people. Um, and had I not have I had I not done so much study on marketing and before because that's what I did before with sales, and I was a pharmaceutical rep for fourteen years. You know, I studied. How do you change human behavior? How do you use language? I studied NLP, which neuro-linguistic programming, which is total mm-hmm. mind fuckery, <laughs> you know, and yep. I studied the language. Then when I started to study relational things, I, you study how abusers are. And I started to see all these crossovers. I, I read up on propaganda and what it does to our, our thinking brain. Um, and what do we do when we're in fear? You learn about the nervous system. You realize... You literally are, you just want a way out. You just want to figure out how do I get out of this? And when, when I hear you did the right thing, I just start to access like, oh, so that means there's a wrong thing. And of course, people who are inherently good, I I think Mm -hmm. they want to be seen as good. And so there's so much coercion that's occurred. And, you know, I, I look at things like, and I know this is likely if you're listening and you're like, oh, this is triggering me. Sure. Okay. That's great. Um, triggers are invitations to expand. <laughs> um, I hear about things like, you know, the Nuremberg code or informed consent. And it's like, you have to have all the information that's important that, you know, all the risks in whatever decision you're making and that there is no, that you're under no duress. Okay. Okay. So <laughs> yeah. I can't fly, which people then go, well, it's a privilege to be able to go to a bar and to go to, uh, not to mention, we haven't even got into that liquor stores and cannabis places are open. Uh, yeah, we, we have broadened hours. And that's, again, how we can't see that fuckery. The, but to know that, like, so wait, if I don't get this thing, I don't get to keep my job. I might not get to see my grand, my parent, my grandparent, my child. I won't be able to fly. I won't be able to cross borders. It just take the, I can't keep my job. Yeah. And I personally, I don't know how anyone can't objectively see that and go, oh, that's coercion. Cause you are under duress. I, I don't know how anyone can object. Yeah. You know, and, and I don't even know how someone, I heard a politician in Canada the other day say the vaccine is the way out of this. And I'm like, how can you say that now that it's the only solution? I'm not saying it's not a solution. Again, I'm, you want to get it, get it. I don't care. Boost away. I, I really think it does offer value of reduction in hospitalization and death in certain populations. I've always thought that. Um, but even that we've been put in, you said like these nice little boxes, the fact that there's one thing pro vaccine, and then that's like on the far end of the spectrum right? Like that's one extreme. And then the other end is anti. Yeah. And both of those people hate each other and call each other names. And, and that's not helpful because that's not functional. That's not relational, but then you have everything that's not pro is so gray. It's this nuance. It's this spectrum of maybe my family has been injured. Maybe I'm from a, a cultural group that's can't, doesn't trust the government and medicine that's fair. Are you fucking kidding me? Look at history. Then you've got people who've been injured by pharma. You've got people like, why did we not trust pharma two years ago? We were like, these people fucking lie. They cheat. They 
they're manipulative. And even though we know all that, now we're like, these are our saviors. Don't you dare talk bad about them. They would never hide data. It's so interesting to me. That's the that's the the what makes me want to shower in Aperol spritz because I'm like, yeah, none of that. The fact that you can't, the fact that I have to say the V and the C on social media should be a fucking red flag to everybody. Wait, what's the C? Oh, the COVID. COVID. <laughs> you can't say either of them because they get flagged. And oh, I haven't. How yeah, is that not my like to to you listening? Well, we're the in fact new... that it's censored is yeah. just. Yeah, I, we're in like new territory, truly new territory, because we it's then there's we had this we had a political situation in the U.S. that was really unprecedented. We had. Ooh. Yeah, you guys did. We had a we have social media, which didn't exist in any prior pandemic, not even not even close. So there's all these, yeah, we, we won't understand. I don't think we'll be able to do a proper post-mortem if we make it that, you know, far. And I don't mean that to be morose. It's just like, who knows, but we, I don't think we'd be able to do a proper post-mortem for 20 years to say, yeah, to really dissect what happened. Cause we just don't know. Like I question even any opinion I have or anything I'm saying now, cause it's like, what do I know? We don't do well with ambiguity. We don't do well. We, it's true. When we, when, you know, the, the extremes of politicization and, and human beliefs, both ends are not very far away, right? We think they are. They're actually like, it's like a circle. One end, you think you're going in the right direction and you're going against this thing that you so despise, but you always make your way back around and you end up the same. And I think that's what I see more, more than anything that, that is frightening is just this, this chasm between, between people. Should we talk about something less depressing? (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, I think, yeah. Like what can we be hopeful for? I do think you're right that we, We'll have a hard time assessing this because the people who were directly involved in the decision making will likely do what they can to mitigate that exploration um, okay. and shame. Like it's hard for us to look at anything that, like, you know, I, I really do. You know, I, I when I was I, I did this video on Instagram and Kai saw it and she said to me. Um, and whenever she says, um, I'm like, okay, yeah, just, <laughs> um, like, it kind of triggers me because it feels like passivity and it feels like I might as well just have my mom talking to me. It's like, be- when can I, t- can I tell you something? Can we, can <laughs> right? we talk? Right. And it's like, or you're like, Hey, how is that? And they're like, um, and you're like, oh, fuck. there's so many words in, um, so many and, words in them. Yeah. And it's what you should so call I'm, this episode. <laughs> right. Right. The, the nuances of them. And I said to her, just deliver it to me straight. Like I know that whenever she gives me feedback, I am expanded. Like I'm just being invited to be better. And she was like, I think that you should practice that when you are passionate about a subject, you get really passionate and you're actually somewhat dysregulated. Mm. And so even if your intention is love and connection and what you're saying is true and you're passionate about it, 
they won't hear it because their nervous system will hear it first. And so it will cause the same division that you're trying to speak to. And I was like, oh yeah, that's so good. Like, how do you be passionately regulated? Which I think is like the ultimate healing space, you know? Yeah. I think that, well, that's, it's very wise. Um, And we, because we associate equanimity with maybe passivity or not having an opinion or not. Yeah. Keeping the peace. kind Not. Of yeah. And it's really not, it's, it's quite a. It's a load of bullshit. Transcendent state to be able to hold all things, but not, not be animated by your yeah. anxiety. True. True. Yeah. So I was saying that when we're, when we're passive and keeping the peace, there's no really internally we are in chaos. You know? Totally. Um, to- oh, that's, that's the violent war I fought all my life. I that's yeah. There's a lot of violence in, in passivity. And there it's, it's so um, it's like no one ever gets to really see someone and no one ever gets the real truth. And I think what's fascinating about it too, is like, if I say, if I don't tell you the truth, because I don't think you can hold it, then I reinforce the story that you can't hear me and I'm not safe to share with you, even though, and I'm saying there are times when we aren't safe, but we're talking about the hypothetical narratives that live in our, in the ether of our unconscious. And I also never invite you to expand and hold it. Like you never get presented with more than just my subtle passive self. And then we are you never get to fully see me. I never feel fully loved. You never get fully expanded and to see potentially yourself and us and what we're capable of creating in no matter the relationship. And it's dishonesty. It's right. just a socially acceptable form of dishonesty. It's a good reason I have, to drink. I had to learn that. That was a huge part of my sobriety. Because I would never like I knew the stuff that I was lying about. I knew when I was lying about how much I was drinking or lying about yeah. who I had been with or lying about those things that, that I knew as lies there, they were just outright deception, but I did not look at people pleasing as lying dishonesty. And it is man. And it'll ruin a It'll, it was the source of all the, tra- the drama in my dramatic relationships because mm. I never you allow things that aren't okay with you. You know, yeah. you, you allow all kinds of things. You ne- like you said, you're never actually showing who you are. And it, it was actually helpful for me to, I was told in a process working with someone like that. I see that the common thread here, because it would always be about the other person that, well, they're impossible to deal with. They're so angry. I am trying to avoid their anger. They're so unfair. They're it was always about them mm-hmm. and why I was justified to avoid them, to please them, to keep the peace around them and for them. And I was like, well, okay, what's the common denominator here? It's you and your in unwillingness, inability for good reasons. There's some trauma underneath there, but for your inability to tell the truth when you're pissed off or say, that's just not okay with me. Or I, I no, I don't want to do that. Something as simple as as that, I don't want to spend time that way or whatever it is, the millions of ways that we just saying yes to a plan when we don't really have this energy or capacity to do it, but we're afraid we're going to compromise the attachment if we say no. 
so yeah, we, we, we can never really be known when we're doing that. Mm. And I think for a lot of women, especially that's where they live and they think that they're doing it for the right reasons. That's what they're supposed to do. It's supposed to come last and be of service and all that, but they don't, and they don't understand that that's dishonesty and it's really ruining their relationships. Do you find that that has a symbiotic relationship with um, the the consumption of wine or the consumption of alcohol? Yeah, of course wine? it does. Because yeah. what happens when, let me give an example. You, you say, say we're, we live in the same town and you're like, you're going to move, moving into a new apartment. And you say, Hey, Laura, um, can you, can you help me load boxes on Friday night? And I'm like, the reality is I can't, I'm exhausted. I have stuff to take care of with my daughter or I just want to take a bath and I'm out, you know, I'm, I'm exhausted from work, but I feel like if I say, no, you're going to be mad at me. You're going to be upset. You really need me. The truth is you might really actually need me. You really actually need me. I'm, I'm, you know, I've always done it in the past. So I say yes. And I do it, but I do it resentfully. And the next day I'm tired and my weekend kind of spirals. And I have that like little hit of going, okay, you're happy with me, but I'm resentful. And likely this is a pattern of behavior for me. I do this with a lot of people. I do it with my boss. I do it with my friends. I do it with my partner. I do it with my kids. And I'm sitting there going, when do I get a break? Yeah. And all that has to go somewhere. So when we get to the end of the next week and we're fucking tired and strung out and we've got nothing left and yeah, a drink sounds like a pretty good idea. Yeah, and I feel justified in doing it. Yeah. You hear that language in the culture too. Like, oh, I just had a glass of wine. Just take an edge down. off. Yeah. 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 And it's totally socially acceptable. Your friends are all going to agree that this is what you deserve and what you need and what we all need. And yeah, I mean, resentment, resentments are deadly <laughs> for toxic people in of, of all kinds, for all kinds of people, for anybody. Resentments are a big, huge red flag sign that you, you need to like figure out what's going on because they lead to really bad things. And a lot of addictive behaviors come from resentments. And if I, as a sober person, I know if I have a resentment coming up, I got to nip that in the bud really quick (laughs) because (laughs) I'm going to get sick, you know, it's going to go bad. I'm the same way. You know, I resentment to me is always a mirror that you are not prioritizing yourself in some way that like you're making something or someone else more important than you. And when I realized that, I remember being like, oh, well, that's on me then. Shit. You know? Shit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is interesting. I don't, I, I don't know if you follow Brene Brown. Um, yeah. I recently cracked open her new book, Atlas of the Heart. And I went right to this page about resentments because I have always thought of resentments one way. And I guess she did too. She thought it was like mm. belonged in the anger family. <clears throat> but what she learned from one of her 
colleagues is that an, an, an expert on, in some field of emotion uh, is that it actually belongs with envy. And I had, huh, to, sit with, I had to sit sense. with that for a minute because think of the last time you were resentful of someone. And I, I mean, I don't have to look very far. Resentments crop up a good amount. Yeah. She said for her, she would usually get resentful of the person that wasn't pulling their weight, for example, on a project. Yeah. It wasn't, it wasn't, you know, show up and roll your sleeves up and fucking do the work like the rest of us. Yeah. And she thought that was about anger, like about some boundary being crossed, which she realizes like, oh no, I'm, I want a break. I need a break. And I'm, I'm envious. I can't give that to myself. And it, that is so interesting because when you think about energetically where it lives in your body, it certainly lives for me in the same place as envy. And it does make sense. It's like, I envy that they're asking for help. I envy that they have boundaries. You know, it's like, it's funny when someone elicits a boundary on us, like, no, I can't make it. And we're like, shit. Like we resent them, but really we envy what they're, what they create in their life. You know? Yeah, I guess, man. But I've been tossing this around and like trying to apply it to different scenarios. And I would love your take on this because this is an area I've never talked about in a public way. Jealousy, envy. Like when I have envy about someone, it's always rooted in this sense of injustice. Like it's not fucking fair. Like mm. there, like, for example, someone that I like would, that gets all these accolades or is very, you know, they're very successful in their work, but say, I think I know something about them. Like they're actually a shitty person. <laughs> and so I would feel this, like, what is that? Is that just anger? Is that resentment? Is that envy? Like, do you, have you had that experience being someone who's public? And yeah, for sure. You know, what do you I mean, do like- with that? How do you? How do you work with that? I remember relationally having that feeling. I mean, maybe 10 years ago, maybe eight years ago. I can't remember. Yeah, it was probably 10. And I was driving down the road in Vancouver by the beach. And there was this really good looking couple together. And I remember thinking like, why the fuck does he get that? You know, like this sort of like, meanwhile, I got no idea what these people are like. I got, you know, we come up with all the stories. He's got a faux hawk. He probably had a puka shell necklace. Like, what kind of douche? But, you know, like, we come up with all Wait, these what's things. A, oh, he had a faux hawk. Yeah, I thought you, you know said the, a faux hog. I was like, no. I need to know. You're like, what's this? I need to know. A faux hog. Um, <laughs> but yeah, you know, we sort of, I remember having that feeling and then exploring it later with, I think it was my coach at the time. And And realizing it's like, maybe instead of like resenting that they have that, you look forward to when it arrives. And so it actually becomes a place of, um, of actual motivation and admiration and hope. Mm -hmm. And, and I was like, that is beautiful. It was like this energetic shift in my body. I've certainly experienced it. Uh, like I remember recently having that feeling, um, reading the words of a really incredible writer on, I think it was like LinkedIn or something. And I was like, man, why does that person have that success? And their writing is so good. And they write such simple things, but they're, you know, all the Oh, who is it? I want to know. (laughs) It was Adam Grant. 
And, oh yeah. He'll do that. He's just amazing. Um, yeah. Cause he, yeah, he's one of these guys where you, you think like, really, you're just some like Wharton guy. Like you're just some nerd. He's not, he's very, he's so brilliant. He's not skin deep. He's, he's like oh. 10 levels deep and very, yeah, he's really good. I, I get that. <laughs> In one tweet he can write. Yeah. Like I have no problem sharing it because he's someone I absolutely admire. Like my envy yeah. was admiration, but also it made me pay attention to like, where am I not putting my own energy in my own work? Where am I not realizing my own potential? Like I found when I first started that I would get jealous of people who had created what I wanted. Yes. I found that too. And that was actually yeah. very helpful. It was like a little GPS, like, oh, you want that. Yeah. It's no. It's like create it, you know? And I, I think it also, for me at least, um, envy or that jealousy can keep us trapped because it's easy to be the victim or the to to not allow ourselves to up level. So we keep talking about people who are levels above. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, it's it, one of those things when they say like, hey, what do you value? And people are like, I have no idea what I value. The recommendation is to look at people you admire because they emulate the values that you hold. Mm -hmm. And so I look at someone like Adam Grant and I'm like, wow, like he absolutely emulates values that I hope to always hold. He operates with integrity. He, he's simple. He like not a simple clear. person, but a clear, simple writer. Yeah. Right. Clear is a better term. We're like Adam <laughs> he's is simple. Sim he's yeah, simple. He's I hope he hears that. Yeah. Yeah. He's right. Dude. Um, but just like, yeah, he takes complex thoughts and, and really, uh, which takes a shitload of work. Yeah. Like he can take it and put it in a tweet. Like writing what is that in looks a, a easy chapter? is the hardest writing. Yeah. It's writing. That's easy to read rather. Cause yeah. writing. Yeah. It's so true. I find Glennon Doyle's like that. Yes. She's very good at distilling at distilling. She's also and, sober too, right? Yeah, she yeah, is. Yeah, she is. And she's very good at um she has the advantage of being funny. She's just naturally she is very funny, funny. And that helps sort of lower the guard down on, on people so they can hear things differently. Humor is humor is uh very powerful. And yeah, I've thought a lot about her work too, because it's like, I mean, I've definitely had that experience with her of being like, ah, you know, I want Shit, all those opportunities yeah. and all that, but, um, or tricking myself into thinking, you know, it's like, for me, it's been a really interesting exercise because I think this applies to anybody. It's not just about being a public person or a writer or whatever. It's like, people in your community or people in your family or other people that you attach to as your, that you get resentful about, or that you feel envy about because you have to work with that energy. What I've noticed is it doesn't go away. It like might transfer to another person, hmm. um, but it doesn't go away. And what, what, what has been the only antidote for me is to pay attention to my work, to get back into my work. Yes. That's always the answer. And as soon as I do Same. that, sometimes it takes me forever. Sometimes I have to like stew in this, oh, this really like, I picture it as like a, like gurgling green, brown, fil filthy. <laughs> slime. That's what that feeling feels like. It's just really icky. I have to gurgle in that for a few days or a couple of weeks or whatever. But as soon as I go back to work, it's, I feel it's gone. Hmm. I think there's it's, something in that too. Yeah. You know, I, I feel the same way, you know, it's like, 
am I fully self-expressing right now? Am I fully in my zone? Am I, and you know, my answer when I was reading Adam, simple Adam, I was like, you know, <laughs> another second podcast title, yeah. Yeah. simple Adam, Adam, you're incredible. <laughs> I envy you. I admire you. Yeah. Uh, is that I, as well. I hadn't, I was holding back. I wasn't, you know, fully in my process. And I think there's something interesting about what you bring forward there because I think we often will look at someone else's life and wonder how they got there. Why did they deserve that? I remember Carolyn May saying, one of the greatest sources of pain we'll have in our lives is imagining that we deserved a different childhood than the one we had. Oh, man. And she said, but like, why do you think that? Why do you think you deserve a different childhood? And why do you think there's a perfect one that you compare it to that someone else had when you don't know the inner workings of their own experience? And she said, when you ask why me, the actual question is, why not you? Why can't you hold it? Why can't you expand? Why? Maybe it's being delivered to you for the perfect reason. And I love her so much. <laughs> she's like, she Can will we likely just talk never. about her for a minute. Oh my God. I try to distill what she's like. Cause she's I, really almost impossible to. She's what, she was I one of my I've first teachers. It. Oh, please. Mine okay. too. Alchemy of, what is it called? Uh, the spirit. What is her book called? Uh, her, her Anatomy first, of the Spirit. Oh my God. Anatomy of the Spirit. I listened to the audio book, which is a workshop and had to buy the book because it was so fucking Well, prolific. in the experience of listening to her, her delivery. Okay. So I think she's like, if Eckhart Tolle and, <laughs> okay. and get ready for the other one, because that's the essential ingredient and Judge Judy had a baby. Because <laughs> I really find like she's looks this, like her. I bet they would even look like her. She's so smart. She's so dialed. She's so truth teller. She doesn't care if you like her. She just wants, she knows the truth sets you free to get the message. That's so, I I respect her work so much. It was life-changing for me. Oh, I'm so glad you brought her up. It's not, it's not, not, you know, she's not, I would say a modern teacher right, right now. And um, she was not in the, of the social media era. So it's not like she's out, you know, she she was sending out <sighs> mailers, probably like posts. She sent out CDs, I bet. CDs I mean, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Wayne the, Dyer. You know? Oh, her and Wayne Dyer, that whole initial like Hay House crew. But I don't even know if she was part of that world. She she just seems like a kind of a unicorn in this space because she's <sighs> this. She's a boss. Medical intuitive. She's. I feel like she's direct channeled to spirit. T- totally agree. Have you ever listened to her TED talk? I don't think so. I she has a know. TEDx talk. Yeah. And okay. I was like, you know, I, there was a phase when I swallowed every TED talk I could get, you know, because mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, I get to take a espresso shot of the smartest people in the world. <laughs> right. um, and then I realized they're probably all at Davos now. But I'm like, <laughs> right. you know, I'm, I, I remember her saying, if there's one thing I've learned in, I think it's like her 50 years of healing work, is that liars don't heal. Ooh. And I was like, whoa, that's a truth. And I thought about that, you know, because, you know, you were speaking earlier about, um, you know, getting to a place where you can't not change. Like, you know, your anxieties are experiencing, you're not telling the full truth of who you are. Same for me. And in before I got sober or before I self-expressed or, and then I feel like I'm always iterating that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But that I would have gotten sick had I stayed working pharma 
Mm-hmm. Like I could tell I was going to get sick. Mm-hmm. And, and, and in a way I'm like presenting my lie self, you know, and I'm doing that work at the time, you know, once it became, I became aware of it right. and she then talks you- about, yeah. Like once the awareness came, then it was like, well, I have to change now. I can't not. Um, but one thing she did say in one of her workshops is that you can make a negotiation. Like if you're like, I'm going to stay in this relationship till the kids turn a certain age, then you've like negotiated that contract that you can be in a state for a certain time. And I believe there is truth to that. Like, I believe like if a lie is to serve survival, you probably, I would imagine you don't, it doesn't create illness because, you know, it creates. Yeah. I think to an extent that's, I'm sure that's too, that's where discernment comes in, right? There's nothing is ever, discernment always has to come into play. It's not always just unless you're Sam Harris, which he, he thinks there is never a single case on earth where you should tell a lie. Um, there are times when it's not in service. of. I wish it was that black and white, you know, I know, I know, but, but yes, um, liars don't heal. Wow. Yeah. I, I, I mean, dishonesty was such a massive part of my sickness Hmm. in long before I ever started drinking. And it, and look, we don't, we don't lie because we're, we don't start lying because we're shitty people. We start as kids to survive. That's how, why I started like, uh, no, I'm not okay, but I'm going to tell you I'm just fine. Cause I don't, cause to feel however I feel is not going to be a welcome thing here or yeah. whatever's going to, whatever I need to say or do so that you don't get angry. Cause when you're angry, I can't tolerate that. It's very scary Yeah. or whatever, you know, we, there's a psychologist and pediatrician, uh, Donald Winnicott from the sixties who developed a theory of the true and false self. And he said that he was a pediatrician, like I said, so he observed children. And he said, he postulated this, this theory that we, when children's needs aren't met, when they are expressing them authentically, even from the very beginning, we know they're crying when they're hungry or they're, um, you know, when they want to be held, if they start to realize that their needs will not be met, they develop this false self hmm. and to the get false self will, yeah, will respond to the demands of the environment in order to get their needs met. So they, if they notice that their mom gets really upset when they're crying, for example, they will start to suppress the crying so that it can get the attention of the mom. And it's a, it's a natural part of development. Um, False selves are, you know, the false, we have a false self that we show up with in certain scenarios in our life. You know, you kind of have to, to be in polite society. You can't quote unquote, authentically express yourself everywhere you go. Wouldn't work that way, you know? Um, But the problem is when you don't know the difference and when you are so identified with the false self, this ties back to social media. When you're so identified with the false self that either a, you don't know that you're enacting a false self. You just know that you feel disconnected, lonely. It's actually an extraordinarily scary feeling. It's depersonalization, Mm -hmm. right? Like you're not actually embodied. Like you're who you present is not who you are. Yeah. I mean, that- and you're, to- you're totally disconnected. I mean, how many people have you worked with where they say, I don't 
really know what I want. I, I right. What do I value? I've, what do I want? Who am what do I? I need? You know, yeah. that's that. That's the an expression of that. Um, because mm. their their true self wasn't their needs or their true self were never allowed to exist. They weren't responded to, and over the course of time, that never got corrected for any number of reasons. Right. So we don't start lying because we're like shady little kids. Right. Yeah, of course. We start like every other thing. We just want to get our needs met. But my, I was so afraid of conflict and so afraid of, I so wanted to just make you like me, whoever you were. Uh, and I wanted to avoid anger at all costs that I had created a whole persona to avoid and, and create these certain experiences. And alcohol was heavily in, entwined in that. I needed it to, because it's also very painful not to be who you are. It's deeply painful. It is. So something has to abate that pain. Alcohol is the primary way I did that. And it also kind of allowed my true self to come through. At least it seemed like it. Right. Interesting. Yeah. But it's like this, the shadow expression of it. Yeah. Or... You, you, you say things that you wouldn't let yourself say. You do things you wouldn't other, otherwise let yourself do. And that feels really good. I think that's a huge reason why people use alcohol <clears throat> is because it lowers our inhibitions as such. And that, I mean, it feels good. The dopamine feels good, but also to express to, it's like, if you think of it as energy, like this is why I think a lot of people have these transcendent experiences of using drugs because their inhibitions are gone and they like their psyche kind of, it's like the the doors blow open in areas of their psyche and there's finally oxygen in there. Problem is it's, there's a big drop afterwards and it's also chemically induced. Yeah. Interesting. Right. I know I, a few things, one, when you were talking about that space between like who we're presenting as and who we are, I just sort of envisioned this cavern, you know, like there's this dark space that's between the, uh, the soul and the presentation of self. And what's interesting is like, when I think about diving into that, it, I know for a lot of people, and this was certainly true for me, that felt overwhelming. You know, like totally. the fact that there even was a space I didn't want to acknowledge, and it was easy to fill that vat with alcohol or whatever it might be. And when you finally realize that in that space is actually everything that matters and, and actually where you discover yourself, it's actually, but, you know, Francis Weller is a psycho, a psychologist who I had him on the podcast. He talked about like, I mean, some of the most beautiful things in on earth grow in the dark, your, your heart beats in the darkness of your chest that he has this beautiful line where he says that um, it is actually in darkness where the edges of darkness, where the soul dwells. And yeah. Yeah. He's so brilliant. I love him. Um, and I think about that as a, as like when, like what I, the lie I hid or the truth I hid most with, I would say I I treated it with alcohol Mm -hmm. and I hid it with a smile (laughs) and laughter and humor was, was I'm really, I've been really hurt or I, I feel betrayed. Um, I'm not okay. And so like, there was so much not okay that I didn't know how to hold. I didn't know how to present it. Um, And I think part of that is 
probably gender related to, although I think that's true of no matter the gender. Yeah, but I think it takes on a different shape in men for sure. Yeah. So it's like, what am I going to bring all my tears and my sadness from a betrayal or a breakup or not feeling prioritized or whatever it is to my soccer team, (laughs) you know, not to say that they couldn't hold it because I can't say they couldn't because I never gave them the chance. Um, But it's amazing when I think about like that, that discovery and that rejoining of self is that's the adventure. I mean, that's That's the adventure. You know, it's when I think about having a drink now, because I never quit alcohol because I felt like I was, you know, waking up in the wrong place. Right. And so when I think about having a drink again, like actually having alcohol again, I have no desire because there's a richness to what I'm experiencing now that like, I can't see it improving. Do you know what I mean? Like, yes. Instead I have these, I really like this, uh, these like high balls that are, have no alcohol. Like I'm, I'm loving a curious yeah. elixirs is an awesome elixirs, soul brew. Yeah. I think I told you about mm-hmm. they're incredible curious elixirs though. They have nailed the it's really delicious. Yeah. There's a new one out of Calgary that's insane. The oh, the woman who created it, she's brilliant, and it's called Wild Folk. It's really Ooh, good. Ooh, I love that. Yeah, name. yeah, she, she's brilliant brander, but like brilliant um, creator. Anyways, yeah, I'm curious your thoughts on. Yeah, no, I love all of those reflections. Like the the dark, the dark part. It reminds me of this poem. I'll read it. That. I read it long. I read it when I became a mother and it meant, and and actually it started to really, like, I got it when I went through my divorce. Um, But it absolutely applies to sobriety and really any sort of initiation that we go through. Mm -hmm. Um, It's called the Holy Longing um, by Goethe. Hold on. Okay. Ready? I'm ready. Tell a wise person or else keep it silent because the mass man will mock it right away. I praise what is truly alive, what longs to be burned to death. In the calm water of the love nights where you are begotten, where you have begotten, a strange feeling comes over you when you see the silent candle burning. Now, you are no longer caught in the obsession with darkness and a, high, a desire for higher love making sweeps you upward. Distance does not make you falter. That distance between our true and false selves, right? Distance wow. does not make you falter. Now, arriving in magic, flying, and finally insane for the light, you are the butterfly and you are gone. And so long as you haven't experienced this to die and so to grow, I'll read that part again. Cause these are, these are the two lines, these last two. And so long as you haven't experienced this to die and so to grow, you are only a troubled guest on the dark earth. Mm. I mean, there's so much richness to all of that. But being a troubled guest, like how, how true does that feel? You're only a troubled guest on the dark earth until you've, until you've experienced this, this dying unto yourself. And then in order to grow, you're just a, you're troubled guest. 
Yeah, I've been reading a lot of, uh, I saw a meme recently uh, that's from the, I love this uh, name of this Instagram account. It's called Life Unimpaired. It's so good. I've come across it before. It's got yeah. some funny memes um, and, and just good ones. And they're often about sobriety. Uh, and one of them said, you thought you came to earth for a vacation. You know, like, <laughs> you know, I think about it, especially as we endure times like this, you know, that allow us to have conversations about, you know, what is it, what is, how does the group move together? How does the individual move within a group? How does an individual psychology influence? How do we use things like alcohol and drugs to escape really what feels like just essential truths in a lot of ways? Like when I hear that poem that you read, you know, it's, uh, it, it just feels so resonant, you know, the butterfly flying away and in so much of, it feels like we're always in the cocoon, like we're always dying and we're always being yeah, born. Some cocoon. Yeah. Right. The next one and the next one. And we're always the butterfly, you know, like this yeah. idea that we are the, I mean, why does a caterpillar get the like <laughs> short end of the stick? You know, know it's like, I. I'm this sluggy, slow moving thing. <laughs> Sounds Prickly, like a great fucking fat. life. Doesn't have social media, <laughs> chilling, you know, and then we go into this cocoon. But, yeah. You, you know, you think about that. It's like being dismantled. It's turning into jelly or whatever the fuck happens right. in there. And then it emerges, um, but all of it's beautiful. And there's this idea that just the butterflies, the beautiful outcome. Oh no. Don't right. you feel about your your most troubled, dark times that there's like, I have such a love for that person, for that, those parts of, you know, those versions of myself. Yeah. Doing the best they can learning for me today. Like that's, I remember I used to have this feeling that I like really rejected younger versions of myself who made mistakes. Mm. Like, Mm. like 20 year old Mark, What an idiot. Piss all boundaries. Horrible. And you only end up in the circumstances I was in where I ended up feeling so betrayed and heartbroken because I didn't have boundaries. I ended up exactly where a boundaryless person ends up. (laughs) And I remember having this feeling where what if instead of exiling these younger parts of myself where I don't want, I don't want to acknowledge their mistakes or their whatever. I actually sit down with them as wise counsel and ask them what they can teach me. And it was this totally different. I mean, I remember meditating, doing this, and then I felt like the 21-year-old version of me or 20-year-old boundaryless mark, no, this isn't going to be ironic, like merge back into my body and rejoin me. Like I had welcomed him home. And I think a lot of Francis Weller's work talks about that we like spend our lives searching for to be chosen or searching for um, belonging. And he said, but at some point we actually have to become a place of welcome. Mm. And I don't, you know, I think that's, it's like, can we find belonging within ourselves first? Cause if, if belonging to a group means me not getting to be myself, that's not actual belonging. Yeah. That was another part of Brene Brown's. There's this illustration that I thought was so good. It was so simple, but the difference between belonging and fitting in. Mm, She's so smart. I know, but that, but, but, but yeah, yeah. The, um, I love, I too very much rejected younger versions of myself. I don't anymore really. 
I have regrets. Yeah, me I mean, neither. I think that you, if you, if you say you don't have regrets, <laughs> I question that it's, I don't think it's wrong to have regrets. I think it's uh, a fact of life because you could, you, you have by choosing some things you've not chosen everything else. And that's just mm. a fact of it. But um, yeah, I have a lot of love for the girl that wrote that paper and then the girl who got right. pregnant and then the girl who got married and then didn't want to be married. And then the girl who got had a baby or a daughter that at first thought that was like the worst thing that could happen. And, and you know, like all of those, I, I'm glad Human you brought that feelings. up because it's made me, yeah, it's made me think about that. The, I do have a, there was a, as hard as it was, I remember um, at the beginning of my sobriety, someone saying, you're going to think back on these days with such reverence mm. for yourself. And I thought, fuck no, I want out <laughs> of these days. I want out of this part yeah. because it was yeah. so just like wall to wall pain. That's what it felt like. Yeah. And, uh, and I do now, you know, I do think like, man, I, it's a miracle. I did it. I pulled off a miracle like every day. Mm. It's it, that's interesting because we often seek miracles, you know, as opposed to being them. Uh, and I'm curious, what is, what was the guiding light for you as you navigated that? Like what Being sober? Yeah. Like, yeah. Like what, when you say it was wall to wall pain, what was mm. more important to you than escaping that? Oh man. It's one of those hard things. That's so hard to define. Um, I had experienced, I wasn't the kind of person who had, a, uh, you know, my last, my, my sort of horrible pin in history, which was a, a real bottom, but it wasn't the end of my drinking was leaving my daughter alone in a hotel room when she was four years old for a whole night. And we were at a wedding and, um, and that was when I started to, to try to get sober, to try to want to get sober. Cause I really didn't want to, even after that, uh, it was just too much loss. So over the course of the year though, the next year I had put together a lot of sober days. And so I started to have a taste of what, what it mm, could be like. like. You could see you could, yeah. I could see that I could, I didn't, I could see if I have to summarize it, I could, I started to know, like in a, in a, on a soul level that there was infinite potential for me in sobriety that were I to get sober, I had this feeling that you could write a book. You could do the thing that you've been talking about doing for 20 years. You could not, you have a lot to say, right? I, I, it's like, I could feel that future version of myself reaching for me. And I, mm. and I got various tastes of that. I started to write a little bit and I started to talk and express, and I started to, you know, even just basic things like not be hung over all the time and see how that felt and like get my brain back and, and not to have some dignity where I could like, if I say something, I might actually do it, you know, or be there for my kids. So I started, I tasted enough of that, that I had, that it was something I, I could 
at least there was this counterbalance to what I thought was only loss and just the end of everything, right? So there was all of that, but it was more like the last time I drank, it wasn't this terrible thing. It was just, I woke up and had this crushing anxiety, just life, just soul crushing. And I thought, I can't ever feel this way again. If I, 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 I like, this will kill me, you know, feeling this way mm-hmm. again. I, I don't know if I can withstand it another time. Um, but I had told myself at that point so many times that I wasn't going to drink anymore that I didn't say that. I just, I think that's when it went from being all this information in my head. Cause I'm very, I don't know if you follow the Enneagram, but I'm an Enneagram seven. I'm very like, I can fix everything with thinking. I can <laughs> take in all the information. I can think my feelings. I don't have to actually feel them. I, there's like a super processor running up here. Right. And I think that I can navigate everything that way. And so I had all this information about sobriety, about addiction, about what I knew, you know, I'd read all the books and whatever, but it hadn't like embodied any of it yet. And I think that's, I think I honestly just finally gave up. (laughs) Yeah. Just like, I'm not going to drink. Almost like surrender. You mean like there was, or was there was, there was surrender, but I also had also thought that I surrendered many times. It was just, <laughs> it was just a, um, I'm surrendering for today. Like I'm not going to drink today and I make no promises for tomorrow. And I did that for long enough that I started to want what I was getting more than what I had before. Yeah. Cause you said like it was, you started to feel what wasn't just loss. Yeah. And that's interesting. I thought about that of like, you're, you started to emerge in some yeah. way, which is really yeah. beautiful. And I love how you said, like, I could feel my future self pulling me forward. And totally, I, I felt like when I started writing about relationships, I felt that longing, like that feeling of yeah. like, so like, you know, because you, know, you started talking about this thing, like, did you ever imagine that you would be this person that has this whole body of work about relationships. Like, could you have imagined that? No, I would have thought I'd be like a sales consultant when I was in my twenties, you know, (laughs) but which I think I would have been good at, but the, I'm sure you would, but like what a tragedy that would have been. Mm -hmm. Well, pain made me want to learn about relationships. And then I thought, yeah. And my, I mean, really I could be so upset at the circumstances that created that, or even the, the failure I was in that moment when, when I sort of awakened to, to this desire to learn about it. Um, but I'm so grateful because, you know, as Carolyn May said, like, why not you? Like it was the perfect alchemical process that emerged from me, a creation that is unique to me and, and, and unique to each individual soul that the, the very path we take is, is inviting something from us. It doesn't mean that it has, you have I think that's where it's like, oh, it has to look this way. That's the trap. It doesn't. It's like, I I think that authentic expression of whatever, you know, I remember Gary Vaynerchuk saying like, if you love Smurf, Smurf it up. Like, (laughs) like, like someone else is going to love Smurfs and someone else is going to want to learn about them. And it's so true. And Seth Godin says, you know, like you just need a hundred people who really love what you do. Yeah. I would never have thought I would be talking about sobriety. Like I wanted to write no doubt, but I didn't 
have anything to write about. You're such a good writer. Like your book is incredible. Thank you. I appreciate that a lot. Yeah. I, 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 I keep thinking about this, this, um, how you said the soul exists on the edges, the way I sort of think about that right now is like the edge is like where creation's happening. Right. Yeah. And when you allow, and and the edge is also scary. (laughs) The edge is is. in, you know, you're, you're pushing into the unknown and that takes faith and courage and all those things. And I think that the, if you, if I had to talk about sobriety, it was really learning to live in that, on that edge. Like literally I had to learn to ride edges of urges to drink. I had to, I was creating an entirely new experience for myself all the time. Wow. We talk about like potential overwhelm, but yet totally overwhelming. I mean, (laughs) when people talk about, you know, news, right. It's exhausting. Like the, I've had this feeling like, does everyone know how long a day is (laughs) the whole day? It's so long. If you're there for uh, the whole thing, you know, funny. you're conscious for the whole thing. Cause even if you're not drinking, like recovering from drinking is like this semi-conscious state, right? You're, yeah. you're, you're just like focusing on feeling better or how, you know, like how not to throw up or whatever, but yeah, totally overwhelming, but there was something it's thrilling too. creating something is thrilling. It is, it is. And, and, you know, when you start to discover that when you're on that edge, you are expanding because you've never been that person. You've never experienced that before. I, I was actually thinking this morning as I was doing a uh, breath work, I had Wim Hof on the podcast. That guy's a great character. Did you? Oh uh, yeah. I, I've, I've heard him talk. He is a total he's so character. Funny. Was, was, yeah. He's, he he's, said uh, one of my favorite lines is I was like, because he was like, you breathe, you breathe. And I was like, do you use your nose or your mouth? He's like, I don't care what hole, use your asshole. <laughs> this is my favorite. <laughs> Oh, it was so good. But this morning I was <laughs> use your asshole. This morning I was doing breath work and you do breath retention after each cycle. And I was holding my breath. I was entering the second minute. <laughs> and I was thinking, like, how long a minute is? Like <laughs> when you are fully present, I had young Pueblo Diego. Uh, on my podcast, I had him on mine too. He's like, man, the kindest, most wonderful. There's a writer who, again, distills things in such a beautiful, Great. simple way. And he, I remember asking him about vipassanas because he does like a fucking lifetime vipassanas. He goes for right. like a <laughs> I month know, for ten years, at a and time. we're all like, I can't spend a day not <laughs> thinking or using a phone or, anyways. And I said to him, "What is like? W- what do you experience?" And he said, you get to such a place of presence that you can feel your blood flow. Oh my God. Yeah. And I was like, that is incredible. Like you think about women. It's a little terrifying for me. Right. It totally is. You're like, (laughs) Um, but what, uh, I just love how you pointed to like when, and I think social media pulls us away from this a lot. Oh, no, doubt. I think about how much time I've wasted on it. Um, and time that's been incredible, but I've certainly wasted a lot, you know, yeah, we it, wouldn't know each other. Right. Right. It's such a beautiful gift. It's, it's allowing us to see possibility in a way we would not see in the myopic 
opportunities of our uh, immediate towns, our immediate communities, even that belonging can exist with, you know, you think about if you, uh, if you're transgender, like before you would have been stuck in this box in a small town, perhaps in Arkansas. And now there's this community. I, I just think it's so yeah, human consciousness. Reasons. Yes. Yeah. But, but then like dark. anything it's good, dark, dark, dark side. Exactly. Mm-hmm. They're not just the dark web, like literally Instagram has a dark side, <laughs> yes. you know, and right there with the light side. It can snap in a second. <laughs> yes. Like when it's not just weaponized against us, um, but also just pulls us away from presence. Like I think about how much creativity is created from boredom. Mm. And it's like, I have to actually basically, I haven't put it in my calendar to be bored, but that's essentially what it's almost come to. I know. You know, I do know. I'm so proud of you for getting off Instagram. I mean, and I say that with this, uh, I'll dive into There's an edge. Well, I came back. Yeah, but you you did, but you still went. And, you know, like for me, there is, I'm dancing on the edge of how do I leave it behind or what does it look like for me moving forward? Um, Well, we should talk because I have some interesting thoughts about that. Like having left, I think what, what, what brought me back was just some, I think I actually healed a bit, you know, like I got out of that state. So my body could finally settle and I wasn't just freaking the fuck out. Um, but I had, you know, my publisher and agent, and then some very wise colleague type people that urged me to reconsider the responsibility of having a public voice and what that could, what the, the upside of that is. And maybe is there a way to, to find a way to use it in such a way that it isn't attached to my self-worth, which is what it had become. It, mm. It's what it can easily become for anybody. Um, so I thought about that for a long time and I ultimately, you know, I actually thought of young, of Diego quite a lot because we, you know, I see him as someone who's doing such good there. Yeah. He's such a good human. And, and you, when you, when you interact with his content, it feels good. It does. I mean, he writes it. He doesn't even write it on Vipassana. He comes back and just dumps it all into, I mean, he probably doesn't dump it. He does something eloquent. He probably has one of those pens that he dips. <laughs> yeah. But, <he's> a <laughs> yeah but, you know, but I'm like, I get it. I agree with you. Is there a way we can dance with any tool? Um, you know, that, cause anything that is easily overconsumed for humans, I mean, we'll fucking <laughs> Yeah. And, and we'll put bots in our, like chips in our arms. So we don't have to use keys. Like how fucked up is that? Like, how lazy we are. We are nut species. Yeah. How did the other thing was, you know, if I'm gonna be in the, like, it's like, uh, you know, people that teach about monks that taught about Buddhism, like nothing against that. But uh, the idea was for a long time in order to achieve any sort of that, the benefit of meditation or to, to achieve enlightenment, you had to go away and live, you know, in a, you had to remove yourself from society. And wow. What's the, you know, so is the answer that I remove myself from this or do I learn to live within it? differently. And that's what I'm trying to do now. Yeah. I think we'll a lot see. of, we'll see. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm inspired by it. 
you know, and, and as I orient differently or, or see how I can orient to social media in different ways, I, yeah, it makes me curious to explore it. I think a lot of us, I think that's the natural progression uh, for people online. Cause you know, social media in some form isn't going away though. There will be new tools, no doubt, but I think it's only makes sense that at some point you would figure out a way. Cause we like came up with it, you know, like Instagram yeah. wasn't, I mean, I don't know when you got on there, but I, I think, think it was, like 2013. Exactly. Like right when it sort of exactly was, same like, time, 2013. Yeah. Mine was December. And no one was on there. I, I mean, no. there were no brands. No, people are like, why are you writing long things here? It's for pictures. I'm That's, like, oh, you're annoying. Yeah. Stop it. Yeah. Why don't you tell me how to live my life more? It's my favorite. <laughs> I get people will be like, I don't think you should be posting this on Create the Love. I'm like, I'm sorry. Is it my fucking Instagram account? Like, go start your own. Like, I don't know. curate mine. That's like, always funny. Oh, the best. Well, I know. You also have a support community that you created. So can you yeah. share with everyone what sure. that's about? Because I, you know, it was birthed at a time it was needed. So yeah, if you could share with people and then sure. where to find it, I think that'd be beautiful. Yeah. I, it's called the luckiest club. Uh, I started it in May of 2020, right when everything shut down. And what actually prompted me to do it was I saw that my local AA chapter stopped having meetings and I never saw that happen, not in blizzards or Never. And so I thought, well, fuck, yeah. this is going to be really bad for people. So I started hosting online meetings, not AA meetings, just like my own format. And then it evolved into a, a real thing. And we have 35 meetings a week now. A week. So, wow. So all just different times, multiple times every day. Um, there's, you know, 13 meeting leaders, um, a team of 20 people total that keep it running. It's really special. And uh, we have a private forum off Facebook, a separate platform and a lot of other programming too. We do a lot of courses and workshops and, but the community part is really, it's um, $14 a month. It's like less than a diamond meeting and people can just show up. We have new newcomer meetings and um, it's really just sitting and listening and maybe hearing something that helps you process what you're going through. It's all online. So um, newcomer meetings, BIPOC meetings, queer meetings, 30 some subgroups that have formed also. So it's really special. Um, it's, a, it's at theluckiestclub.com. Beautiful. And, yeah. Um, where can people find your book? I'm guessing everywhere. Everywhere books are sold. Yeah. And if you, I mean, my website is lauramccowan.com. So everything, all my stuff is there. That's probably the best place. We'll link yeah. it all out and it, make sure, cause you're on Instagram. We'll make sure we link your Instagram. Instagram. Um, yeah. And my, my, the paperback of my book just came out. So like literally I just got it in the mail. So it's kind of fun. Everyone go buy this book. If you are like, even just there's a cell in your body. That's like, I just want to there's something I want to learn here or need to know, or that to me was the the beginning was just like, there's something here. Like I'd gotten yeah. the hint so many times. Seed. Yeah. yeah. Don't wait for the cosmic two by four, go buy Laura's oh book. Please and, don't. Yeah. Yeah. It, as opposed to it being this super oppositional force that rather it's like, 
it's an invitation to a more expanded version of us. Um, yeah, and, and whatever that even means. Alcohol, exactly. Right? A, a lot of people have read it and thought, I don't like said, I wrote me, I don't, I don't have anything with alcohol, but I, but it's this, you know, food yeah. or whatever. My boyfriend read it. Funny story. When we started dating, uh, we met on in May of 2020 as well. That was a big month for creation, I guess. And um, yeah, on on Bumble, and because it was COVID, we couldn't. We like it was very you know sporadic of how we could see each other. We were just going on walks. It was actually a very great way to meet meet someone. But he ordered my book and read it, like in the first couple of weeks of us talking. And he hasn't drank since, and he never had a problem either. He was just like, oh, that's so beautiful. I, think I want to try that. <laughs> And he loves it. So he talks about it a lot like you do. Like, yeah, don't miss that. Yeah. You know, it was the social aspect of it that I missed. But then I now crack a hop. That Those are good, too. I yeah. crack a hop or I make a curious elixir. And it's interesting because I'll have friends be like, hey, can I have one of those? Or like when they go out, they have a... a non because there's some really good non-alcoholic beers there are now yeah yeah like athletic brewing is dope yes, um, i know they're just starting to carry that whole foods down the road i was like oh that's good they're good. really good hops are amazing athletic brewing try. oh hops are so delicious and then there's another one uh oh man i can see their pale ale in my head but it tastes like a real beer i remember having one after golf while i was driving but you're like buddy. And we're about, he's like, Hey, we're having a beer and driving, <laughs> you know, <laughs> right. because it's so Pull counterintuitive. I would never beer. drink driving, but I'm like, this tastes like beer. I'm behind a wheel. This is weird. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Laura, I love you. You are such an incredible human. I'm so grateful that we got to have this conversation and, and just the this work that fun. you're doing and uh, you what too. you provided. I mean, thank you. So thank you for being here. Yeah. Thanks. We almost went two hours. I didn't realize that. I know. That's always how you know it's good. Love it. Thanks so much for tuning in to today's episode. If this episode resonated with you, one of the best ways to support the show is to go subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss any more. Leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to it, or share the episode with your community on Instagram or whatever social place you like to hang out. This helps get it into more people's ears, and I'm so grateful for your support, always. Thanks again for tuning in. Much love.